0: Welcome to Now I See, a podcast where people of vision share eye-opening experiences that help them and can help all of us shift focus, gain perspective, and see ourselves, our world, and our place in it in a whole new way. Hi, this is your host, Kit McCarty, and my guest today is Glenn Cato. Glenn, it is great to have you on our show today.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about chaplaincy.
0: I am so excited that you're here. I see you as a successful, results-oriented, strategic planner. You're resourceful, you're money-wise, and generous. Most of all, I see your quiet, gentle strength in the way you treat others with compassion and respect. Apparently, others see this in you, too, which is why people turn to you for leadership in business, civic service, church, and charitable organizations. You've been on the board of the Grand Prairie Educational Foundation, the Grand Prairie Emergency Medical Services Committee, and Brighter Tomorrows, an organization that provides a haven for local families in crisis. Starting in September of 2011, you built the Crisis Response Ministry, which we refer to in the show as CRM. You built that from the ground up here in our community, and now you serve as the chairman of the board for the state of Texas. In 2012, you began your journey as a chaplain and currently serve as the senior chaplain of the Grand Prairie Police Department. You also co-founded a Grand Prairie Police Department Behind the Badge organization, which is a support group for families of law enforcers. So you've been a busy guy, and that kind of maps out the streets we're going to explore today. So listeners, buckle up. But before we put this show in gear, Glenn, how would you like our audience to see you today?
1: Well, I think the way I see myself is primarily as a servant leader. Over the years, as I've taken various spiritual assessments, one of the common themes that comes out is leadership and I've had fortune enough in my business career to be spent most of it as in leadership positions. And then from church-related, I've either served or chaired on most of the committees, taught Bible studies, been a department director for young adults. For My wife and I did that for 25 years. I've served as a deacon for over 40 years and was licensed to the ministry in 2010. And both of the churches that I served in defined their deacons and ministers as servant leaders. And so that shaped my view of ministry. It wasn't so much about being a governing body as it was about being a servant leader. And so I think over the years, that's pretty much what has shaped my view of uh, spiritual uh, journey.
0: So uh, what values and you brought you to have an interest in serving your church and your community?
1: Well, I think it started... By growing up in a Christian home. Um, I had great Christian parents. They were super role models in terms of how to treat people, uh, showing respect uh, for family, for friends, and for strangers. And so a lot of my views were shaped as a young person through my parents. And then when I was 19, uh, I met Gail Duncan, who is now my wife, and has been for the last 46 years, Very nice. Um, we met on a blind date, and Gail's dad was a Baptist minister. And so I had the opportunity to see up close what the life of a Baptist minister looked like. And uh, both Gail and her dad, I think, shaped uh, my spiritual journey as we just kind of walked together. Um, I miss a lot of the conversations he and I used to have uh, around questions um, about the Bible and scriptural discussions. Um, but over the years that we, were, that we were together, Gail and I have had a number of conversations, and her, her dad and I have had a number of conversations, and those were always wonderful. And I attribute that to shaping my view of my spiritual journey.
0: Well, it's interesting to me that you started out your career as an accountant, yeah. <laughs> um, because that seems very different from what you're doing right now. But there are some similarities. See, accountants have a very clear definition of what is on one side of the line and what's on the other. And it seems like your whole life has been about pursuing and maintaining what's good and right and just. And so I see that those values certainly translate into what you're doing. But how about that journey that uh, you began, where you began to serve the community and the police as a chaplain?
1: Well, if, it, if we go back to the very beginning I would attribute it to um, winter break in 1975, when I was a senior in college. I had an opportunity to go on a mission trip through Texas Baptist Men. There were three churches in Grand Prairie: First Baptist, Fairview Baptist, where I was atten- that I was church where I was attending, and Lakeview. We spent a week in Honduras on a disaster relief mission. In September of '74, they suffered a, a devastating hurricane that created a mudslide that buried a portion of San Pedro Sula, and we were going down there to help rebuild, and so that was my first experience with seeing people in crisis. They estimate more than 5,000 people were killed, 10,000 homes destroyed, and a portion of the city buried under six feet of mud, Uh, and so seeing that was uh, pretty important uh, aspect, I guess, of forming my view of working with people, individuals and families in crisis, which is what I do today. But probably one of the most significant understandings was about divine appointments, because I understood after coming back from that trip what that meant. Because even though the purpose of the trip was to go down there and serve the uh, to rebuild, Satan had his hand trying to stop that trip from the very beginning from visa issues with the consulate to transportation issues to when we arrived, the missionaries there thought we were coming the next week. So none of the materials that we needed were there. (laughs) So they're trying to figure out what to do with us. So we spent the night in San Pedro Sula and the next morning they came and said, you know, there's this little town up in the mountains called Suhuatopecchi. They're trying to rebuild Uh, their church, and build a parsonage. Would you guys be interested in going up there? We were very disappointed that we weren't going to be able to do what we went down there, but we set aside our own thoughts and feelings and said, if that's where God wants us to be, that's where we're going to go. I still get emotional (laughs) after all these years.
0: Uh, How could you not? I mean, just see the scope of devastation. And to, as a young person, not even knowing how to put your arms around that and where to begin, well, of course got, that impacted you. When
1: we got to, the, uh, to this little town in the mountains, they, they put us on a bus and took us up there. Uh, we worked alongside the uh, members of the church. We held bilingual worship services in the evening time, and, and the church windows didn't have glass. They were just shutters. They'd open the shutters, and people would hear what was going on. They would stop and look in and when we finished uh, at the end of that uh, trip, we got on the bus to head back, and one of the deacons came on and said, I, don't, I know that we'll never see you again here, but I'm confident that we will be together in heaven. Wow. That would you would assume to be the end of the story, but it really wasn't, because five years later, one of our guys had moved his family to Washington. The two missionaries from... San Pedro Sula, came to their church to speak and talked about a group of Texans that had come to that city, worked alongside, and that a spiritual revival broke out.
0: Bless God. (laughs) That (laughs) is amazing.
1: Once in a while, God gives you those rare opportunities to see the impact that you can have. And so, for me, the understanding of what it means to have a divine appointment was crystallized in that trip. And it's caused me over the years to pay attention to thoughts that God may put into my head or if my schedule's not turning out exactly like I want it to, that maybe there's a reason. There's somebody that God's going to put in my path that I need to, to talk about. And I, I can tell you that there are a number of situations that have occurred in the last 10 years as I've been a chaplain where that exact thing has happened, where I, I realize afterwards that my schedule didn't turn out exactly like I wanted to because it put me in the path of somebody that, that I was supposed to talk to.
0: So many times, yeah, I hear you. So, so many times. Well, that is a moving story, and it certainly does lay the groundwork for you becoming a chaplain later. So, let's talk a little bit more about that process okay. for you. How did that happen?
1: Well, the uh, I talked with our pastor, uh, Dr. Bill Scar, and Bill always knew that that as I approached retirement, that I was feeling called into the ministry. And I would probably spend time as a bivocational pastor in a small church that couldn't afford to pay uh, a pastor. And uh, he tapped me on the shoulder one day at a, at a ministry fair and said, there's some people here that I think you need to talk to. And it was the predecessor organization for CRM. So I went over and I started talking to them, found out what they did, that they were involved in, in uh, uh, working with victims of crime and, and people in crisis. Um, two weeks later, I was in their basic training, going through crisis intervention training, went through 16 hours of that uh, training, and then began to talk to them about forming a chapter in Grand Prairie. Talked with the police department here, began talking with other pastors, because CRM is a non-denominational we all have the common theology. We all believe in the Trinity. We all believe in salvation through Jesus Christ as a gift from God. But the doctrinal things that make us Baptists or Methodists or Presbyterians don't really enter in. And so we're working together under a common theology. And so I began to talk to different uh, pastors, and they allowed me to make presentations within their churches. And God began to call people that had an interest in providing uh, ministry to people in crisis. And so we began building the local chapter that way. And over the the time, over the last uh, few years, uh, CRM has grown beyond just the Dallas area and Grand Prairie, but we have chapters now in Tarrant County, Ellis County, Collin County, Smith County down in in East Texas, and a newly formed chapter out in El Paso. Um, And we have one that's being formed right now in Grayson County up um, by the Texas-Oklahoma border. So CRM uh, is becoming a statewide ministry.
0: Well, and a lot of that is due to your leadership. I remember when you first got involved, you were so excited and you were recruiting personally so many people in our circle of friends and Grand Prairie actually became the flagship for how CRM ought to be done and it was so successful and it meant so much to the victims and to the police officers and the people who were helped in natural and in um, in crisis of, of whatever kind. That was so useful that that was easy to then say this is what we're doing in our community. I think you could do it for years. And uh, your leadership just was so critical in forming those groups and bringing in those people who brought in their gifts, their their talents their excitement their passion and really made it something here in our in our community so I want to thank you so much for that thank you so this didn't just happen to you lightly i mean you really had to do a lot of preparation you didn't just wake up one day and say you know what i want to do you had to take a lot of training and classes and some of that training includes basic and advanced crisis intervention the science of trauma disaster spiritual care training group and individual incident stress training psychological and mental health first aid suicide prevention, national law enforcement chaplain training, community emergency response training, and then a host of FEMA classes. So um, you have really pursued this wholeheartedly. What are some of the benefits of the time that you invested in your training and your learning?
1: The interesting thing is that there's so much you can pull from the training that um, benefit everyday life. You don't have to be in a ministry working with people in crisis to benefit from some of the training. I think we've all experienced different things in our lives. We've dealt with family members that are in crisis, and that training helps us to understand what they're going through and how to deal with them. One of our primary uh, mantras is to do no harm. And people say things when you've lost a loved one, and their intent is good, but the words that they say are wrong. And so we're taught a couple of things. One is... If you don't know what to say, it's better to say nothing. We have something called ministry of presence because it's not so much what you say that people are going to remember, it's the fact that you were there. That's a very important aspect of our ministry because police departments, because we partner with police and with fire, and police departments are a very closed group, you know, and it's, it takes time and trust that you build over time to become part of their inner circle. Uh, and so when we're there, we don't force ourselves on them. We're there as a ministry of presence. If they want to come talk to us, that's fine. If not, that's okay, too. They know we're there. They know we're praying for them, and we're praying for their families, and that's the important part of it. And over time, you build that trust.
0: Absolutely. And, and what I love about this particular ministry is it really does reflect the heart and nature of God who goes to seek and save the lost, who ministered to people in crisis, who brought healing and hope and resurrection from the dead and cleansing and restoration, who brought joy to parties, who <laughs> cleansed the temple with his passion for God and for holiness and righteousness. And so we see these things worked out in this ministry, which is why so many different denominations can get behind it, why believers of various stages in their walk or of their persuasion can join in this ministry. And, and to me, that's really exciting, too. So often it's easy for us to get closed off in our own little church communities, mm-hmm. and I love that this organization builds a bridge between churches and our community services.
1: I've had an opportunity to attend worship services in other denominations in the last 10 years, and it's been a wonderful experience because we all are a little different in how we worship, but we all worship the same God. And we all believe in the same uh, Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it's been a real blessing to see other people uh, worshiping God in their way.
0: We'll be back in just a moment. Like Crisis Response Ministry, now I See brings together individuals of various backgrounds, ethnicities, social circumstances, and interests for common purpose. At Now I See, we want to bring you, our listeners, stories that engage, educate, and elevate. Last week, we talked about the art of storytelling with Izzy Reed. Next week, we will hear the story of Dave Arden of Chosen to Speak. If you're enjoying our conversation, would you like, subscribe, subscribe? Rate and review so others can enjoy it, too. That's how this works. In a moment, we'll rejoin Glenn Cato to hear more about how crisis response ministry works. Well, in response to the crises that uh, we've seen, not only on the news here locally, but also internationally... You've responded to more than 450 critical incidents since 2011, including events that received national coverage like tornadoes in Lancaster and Van, Cleburne and Rowlett, the floods in Wimberley and in San Marcos, and then the fertilizer plant explosion in West Texas. That was international news. So, can you share some stories about how Crisis uh, Response Ministry uh, works in those situations? What do you do when you arrive?
1: When we arrived, the FEMA training you had mentioned earlier is is about how to function in a multi-agency disaster where you have several different agencies that are involved in rendering aid to, to the local uh, community. And so we, we have to understand where our role and what our place is. And one of the things that we try to tell people is stay in your lane, do what you're told to do, and only that. Uh, and so when we get on scene, as in the case with the uh, West fertilizer plant, we had reentry teams that as families were allowed to go back into their neighborhoods for the first time to assess the damage to their homes. We were paired with a mental health uh, counselor and we walked the streets looking for people that might be in stress and then uh, providing emotional support for them, spiritual support. And if we saw somebody that went beyond our training, then we would bring the counselor in to have them talk. Our sort of trademark is a bottle of water, and you'd be surprised if we walk up to someone and offer them a bottle of water, how they'll immediately start to converse with you and tell you their story. And, and in tornadoes that I've been in, I've, I've heard people talk about it, uh, how they survived. And it's only by the grace of God that some of these people survived when everything around them Except the one spot where they were hunkered down uh, was the only thing that would survive. But hearing those stories, allowing them to be able to talk about it is part of the crisis intervention. Is they're not able to, they're not keeping it bottled up. They're able to start to talk, and we encourage them and we pray with them. Um, We've had, I've had situations in in tornadoes where I would start to pray uh, for uh, some people in the street. And I, and I, as I would start the prayer, somebody would come in and grab my hand and I'd look up and there would be, where we started with two, there'd be 10 or 15 people that had joined that circle of prayer. And so it's just about showing that compassion and and concern for people and letting them know that they're not walking alone through that devastation.
0: And uh, so the comfort that you bring to these people is so helpful and prayer is such an important part of that. I think when nothing else makes sense, when your house is blown up or you've become a victim of a crime, nothing makes sense. And you're just grasping at anything that will give you comfort and security. And it's so great to be able to be there, to hold somebody's hand, to pray with them, to point them to the one thing that is always going to be secure, and that's God himself. And I love how you do that many of the people that you worked with still talk about the days that they spent in West, and it was days. It wasn't just, oh, you know, you went down, you did your thing, and you left, about helping people find shoes and dentures and eyeglasses and replacing, you know, they fled their homes with whatever they had on, and so some of them were in pajamas. They didn't have uh, their purses, their IDs, no money, no credit cards, no cell phones, and so in addition to comforting them and meeting their emotional needs, you guys also provided a real practical service of just um, bringing some stability to their lives by providing water and food and resources. Um, And so not only were you able to uh, minister to the people there, the victims of this incident, but your team also grew together as they worked together deeper in their relationship with the Lord. They had a more profound sense like you did when you were in Honduras. Of what it means to be with someone in a disaster, and it's just it's so vital. So you started there with the crisis uh, response ministry, and yet you wanted
1: more. Well, the the opportunity came uh, to join the police department as an assistant chaplain, and uh, after after working with the department for several months, I realized that there was there was a an opportunity there. I didn't know this until, until that point, but I've always had a tremendous respect for law enforcement. Didn't know that there was a place that I could feed my interest and respect for law enforcement and my passion for ministry in one place until I was offered that opportunity. And, and it has been uh, a blessing beyond words uh, over the last uh, nine years that I've served in, in that capacity and I think one of the things that has been most eye-opening uh, is the accumulated toll that it takes on an officer and his family through a career. The things that they see, um, the things that they experience are beyond what most of us have an opportunity. Um, I, I attempt not to see as much as I can because there's a certain amount of stuff that I don't have any choice. Um, they don't have that same choice it's the reason why we see more police suicides than we do line of duty deaths we see a higher than national average divorce rate because the accumulated toll it takes on our officers and their families is pretty devastating and so part of my passion has developed is talking about resources that are available for officers to find resiliency and a positive ways to be able to relieve stress, positive ways to build uh, resiliency. And the GPPD behind the badge was uh, an effort that our mental health counselor at the department and I talked about of bringing family, the the spouses together uh, to be able to provide training for them to help understand the emotional survival necessary to be in a law enforcement family. Uh, and, and some of our training has been spotting signs of suicide because they're going to see it first before anybody else does, talking uh, age-appropriate uh, discussions with children about the dangers of the job because um, every time there is a, a news story about an officer that's being killed, it affects these kids and their fam- and families. And um, in 2019, we lost an officer here to a traffic fatality, and that had a tremendous impact on um, our department and on the families of our department and it was after that experience that we formed the gppd behind the badge uh, in order to give that support to families and not just the officers
0: i love that so much because officers do need help they need to know that they're not in it alone but at least they have the camaraderie of the uh, of other guys and, and gals on the force but wives and children may not always feel that And especially in this culture where it seems like there's a growing hostility towards police. And we're hearing the news every day about police brutality and um, defunding of police. And it's becoming kind of a national crisis. And so that's got to undermine the security that officers feel while while they're on the road. And also their families who say goodbye every morning and wonder whether or not their loved one will come home. And so I, it's so exciting to me that you've not only found a way to, to help people who are serving, but also to help those who are supporting those who serve, because their um, participation is just as critical.
1: It really is. And if they don't have the support at home, then the, the officers have a much more difficult path. In fact, I just talked to one of our officers. We have a young rookie that went through all the academy was in field training and resigned because his wife was having a hard time dealing with it. So it's important for those families to be together on the same page and for them to understand the difficulties because an officer may come home after having just encountered a horrific event. They walk through the door and the wife is there telling them about her day or what needs to be fixed. They need time to decompress But once they've had that time, then they've got to engage in the family part of it. It can't be all one side or the other. But they have to work and communicate on what they each need in order to be able to communicate and not tear the uh, marriage apart.
0: I think that's so important um, because, as you mentioned, some of the things that they have seen on the job can't be unseen. Death, dismemberment, abuse, neglect. And those are horrific things, but a steady diet of that has got to just erode (laughs) the foundation of your soul. And so to be able to learn how to cope with that and still enjoy all the good things of life, friends and family and social gatherings and celebrations. And so I think that that's important that you have noticed that and that you're there to help and serve. So uh, tell me some stories about uh, your service as a chaplain. What are some of your successes?
1: I think some of, the, some of the more memorable ones that stick out in my mind, one was uh, a divine appointment I talked about earlier. I was at Joe Pool Lake, and we were getting ready for a, for a particular uh, deployment the next day. Things weren't going well. We were, we were trying to get set up. Uh, there was some delays, and we were about an hour behind where I thought we would be. And as we were, I was kind of frustrated, and as we were leaving the the park, Gail and I were leaving the park, um, we were met by fire trucks, ambulances, police cars, running uh, code three with lights and siren. And uh, so I flipped a U-turn and followed them in and uh, found that uh, there were four children on a tube that had been hit by a boat. Two of them were minor injuries. The other two were more serious. One was transported to Children's by ground ambulance, the other one by CareFlight helicopter, and those were two brothers. Um, I spent some time with the mom until she left with the ground ambulance, was able to try to provide some comfort to her. And as I was leaving, I uh, had this tremendous feel or pull of and compassion for a mom who was going to be in the emergency room with two of her kids by herself, and I told Gail, I said, I've got to go. And so I dropped Gail off at, at home, and uh, and I went to Children's um, and stayed with the mom until uh, some of her family and her pastor uh, got there. But that was one of those divine appointments that had we not been running an hour behind, I would have never had the opportunity to minister to to the woman. She didn't remember my name. She didn't remember anything that I said, but the next day she, two of the officers went over to check on the kids and she said, thank the chaplain for being here. And so again, it's an emphasis that of the importance of ministry of presence. It's not about what you say or do, but it's just about being there. So that was certainly a memorable and, and probably, you know, one of the, one of our roles as as police chaplains is to be present Uh, for any family that's lost a loved one, That wants a chaplain whether it's through medical related causes or whether it's violent crime and the one call that never gets easier is delivering a death notification knocking on somebody's door to tell them that um, their loved one's not coming home never gets easier and the toughest stretch for me is i had five death notifications in four days and one of those was our officer that was killed his family so those, those are the kinds of calls that really uh, stand out. And it just so happened that all five of those were traffic-related fatalities. And uh, it does take an emotional toll. You know, God has a way, I think, of giving me the ability to be empathetic when I'm on scene, which I hold my emotions in check. But the switch flips to sympathy when I'm away from that scene, and I can be sharing that with Gail because that's the way that I heal myself is in talking about it, and, and, uh, uh, and that's where sometimes the emotions uh, flow at that point.
0: Well, I want to thank you so much for your service to our community, to our police officers and law enforcement, to our church, and uh, I just wonder if there is one thing as we close up our show today that you hope our listeners will take away from our conversation.
1: Well, I think the main thing is to understand the impact that law enforcement has on officers and families, and the next time that you see an officer at the convenience store or the grocery store or wherever you might encounter them, stop by and just say hi and tell them you, you appreciate their service to our community because they are there for us. Absolutely.
0: So um, if somebody wants to continue this conversation with you or to find out more about CRM, Tell us where we can find you.
1: Yeah, you can find us on our website. It's crmtx.org. There will be a list of telephone numbers and and, uh, opportunities to get involved as a volunteer. Or if you want to make a contribution, uh, you can do that through the website.
0: Very good. That's what I was going to just ask. As if you were seeking for more volunteers or ways that people can give. I know that you, ha- like you said, you have the water bottle ministry where you hand that out, and mm-hmm. people can certainly supply that. Thank you so much for your time today. I've certainly enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, kid. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. Loved, always love talking. Thanks. I enjoyed it too.
0: If you enjoyed our show today, please tell your friends, like and subscribe, so you'll receive future notifications when our next shows become available. Visit our website, nis.media, for show notes, bonus content, contact information for our special guests, and access to their products and ours. Or perhaps you'd like to leave a comment, a perspective on our show today, or share an eye-opening experience of your own. We'd love to hear from you. Again, that's nis.media. Special thanks to our technical director, Jim Wilson. Music by Rebecca Salazar. I'm your host, Kit McCarty. I look forward to seeing you again soon.